Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing to look at biblical wisdom, and here, James B. Jordan is going to give an introduction to the book of Ecclesiastes. We really hope that you enjoy and are helped by this time of teaching, and thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan discussing biblical wisdom in the book of Ecclesiastes. Okay, we'll begin a consideration of Ecclesiastes this morning, and the first thing we want to talk about in connection with the book of Ecclesiastes is the author and the date of the book, because very few people anymore believe that Solomon wrote it. The author presents himself as Solomon. I don't think there can be any question about that, as we'll see and as you've always heard. The author of Ecclesiastes is Solomon or else Solomon. (laughs) So, which is it? Well, the arguments are these. That supposedly lay grammatical and verbal elements in the book cause most 20th century commentators to assume that the Solomonic authorship is a literary pretense and that the book was written later on. The most common view that you find in the literature is that the book originated during the Persian period after the exile. This is because of two supposedly Persian words, pardes, from which we get the word paradise, orchard in chapter 2, verse 5, and pitgam, which means a judicial sentence, found in chapter 8, verse 11. But the most that can be said, as Chun Leong Xiao, or however that's pronounced, does anybody know? Xiao. In the Anchor Bible Commentary, he says, there's no clear evidence of Persianisms in the Hebrew Bible prior to the Achaemenid period, that is, after the exile. Well, no clear evidence in the Bible. What does that mean in Hebrew literature? There is no Hebrew literature except the Bible. The Bible doesn't consist of all that much stuff. So, how do we know? This is an argument based on empty air, I'm afraid. There's no word for cat in the Bible. Does that mean that they didn't have cats? That they had eaten them all? God didn't create cats. Cats are entirely new covenant creation. They came out of Egypt, I can assure you, they brought a lot of cats with them. Okay? Uh, But cats don't show up in the Bible. So if the word cat showed up in Ecclesiastes, they'd say, oh, a late word. (laughs) This doesn't mean anything. So lack of evidence proves nothing. We simply have no evidence outside the biblical text itself. There's no other Hebrew literature that we can look at in the ancient world to say what was current at certain times. Second of all, we would have to say that Solomon's empire was extensive and he had contact with many cultures. We just read about that. That there were all these nations round about and kings round about who took interest in Solomon that there was an international wisdom literature going on, that Solomon's wisdom literature was even better than the wisdom literature of the sons of the East. Well, what's that? Who's out to the East over there? Medes, Persians, Babylonians. The Queen of Sheba came all the way up from Libya to visit him. So Solomon could easily have pulled over words from these other cultures, considering how international the situation was at that time. And third thing that I would say 
is this argument is arbitrary. It's just as legitimate to say that the presence of Persianisms in the writings of Solomon is evidence that they were in circulation before the Achaemenid period. In other words, you can say, well, the Persianisms show that this is late. You say, no, the Persianisms show that they had contact with Persia back then. There's no argument here. It's just an assertion. You just pick which side you want to be on. I pick the true side myself. Then there's additional Persian argument is that there are Aramaic words and Aramaisms in the text. Aramaic is an international Semitic language that developed a little bit later on than classical Hebrew. So supposedly this indicates a late writing. But here again, all he can say is these terms are not attested in Aramaic or Hebrew prior to the Persian period. He's got a short list of words that don't show up in the Old Testament until the Persian period. They show up in Ezra, Nehemiah, and in Ecclesiastes. So he says, well, these words weren't around until then. But again, lack of evidence doesn't prove anything. All Sial is really saying is that they don't show up in other books of the Bible, because that's all the evidence there is. If we had all kinds of other books... If we had all 101,005 songs by Solomon, who knows what words might show up? We don't have those. There's loads of other stuff that was written by people at the time we don't have. There's no way to know what words were current when. How can you say this? This is Rumpelstiltskin exegesis, an attempt to spin gold out of straw. All we have is straw. You cannot get this stuff out of it. Mitchell Dahoud has argued that some of these Aramaisms are Phoenicianisms, and hence could be much earlier. Seau summarizes criticisms that have been made of Dahoud, but admits that he's partly right. Seau and others have to admit that there are plenty of Aramaisms in earlier parts of the Bible, and their argument boils down to saying that there are a few that seem late and appear only in Ecclesiastes and post-exilic books. This is pretty thin string. You know, this is pretty thin on the ground. I mean, how do we know that? Hebrews weren't using these words 500 years earlier. We don't. Now, a lot of these arguments for a late Persian period have been pretty devastatingly dealt with by Daniel Frederick's book, Kohelet's Language, Reevaluating Its Nature and Date, published by Edwin Mellon, which means that it costs $110. So I don't have one. He argues that it was written not by Solomon, but also not this late, or written in the 8th or 7th centuries, as opposed to a couple of centuries earlier when Solomon would have done it. So while this book is useful in taking down the arguments for a Persian date, though it has not convinced those who believe in the Persian date, the same flaw is found. Given that the Hebrew Bible is all we have to go on, there is no way anyone can say what words and forms were floating around in Solomon's day. So... You decide if you want to decide. I'm going to argue that the book clearly presents itself as being written by Solomon, and there's no reason to question that Solomon himself actually wrote it. I think you always have to ask the question, deceptive authorship may occur here and there in the ancient world, but does it square with the nature of the biblical understanding of truth for there to be deceptive authorship? If Daniel didn't write Daniel, but somebody pretending to be Daniel wrote it, does that square with what the Bible tells us about truth? A whole lot of evangelicals think that that's just fine. You know, this was the game as it was played in the ancient world, and there's just nothing wrong with it. 
But a lot of others, myself included, think that there are some moral issues involved there and that you just would never have that happen in Hebrew culture. Plus, I'm not sure how much pseudepigraphical writing there is in other cultures. I mean, nobody questions the Amarna letters. Nobody says, well, the Amarna letters were faked up 300 years later and they really weren't by to tank them and, you know, they didn't really happen. Nobody asks that. Nobody says that there's two Plato's, an early Plato and a late Plato. First and second Plato. First Plato wrote the Republic when he was still idealistic. Second Plato, 300 years later, writes the Laws, which is a much more practical, less idealistic book. Nobody says that. But when you get to the Bible, you got first and second Isaiah, first and second Zechariah, and you have all this other stuff. Seems very arbitrary to me. And I don't believe it. I think Solomon wrote it. In fact, I know he wrote it. And if you want to fight about it, we'll step outside and we'll take it on. <laughs> it's had enough. All right. But those are the arguments. This is what you're going to find in almost every published discussion of this book. Now, Walter Kaiser's little book on Ecclesiastes, which Mickey will talk about, is very good. And he takes the Solomon authorship. And a few others still argue for it. But the scholarly world has lemminged itself on off after these fashions. Now, the book says it's written by Koheleth. In your Bible, it says the preacher. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. The word of Koheleth. It comes from the verb kahal, which means to gather or to assemble. And hence it means the one who gathers the people. Now Solomon gathered, kahaled, the people to dedicate the temple in 1 Kings 8, 1 and 2. And the noun form appears throughout chapter 8. And I think we need to take this into consideration because my argument is going to be that I think it most likely that Ecclesiastes is produced as a piece of literature about the time that the temple is dedicated. It reflects on building. So the verb kahal, I need to say too, if you look in your concordance, in a concordance, the instances of the noun kahal and the verb kahal doesn't occur all that much in the Hebrew Bible. It does stack up in 1 Kings chapter 8. doesn't occur that much else in the book of Kings. But here we read, chapter 8, verse 1, And Solomon kahal assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' households of the sons of Israel, to King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh from the city of David, which is Zion. The city of David refers to the Zion mountain within Jerusalem. Peter is the expert on this. And all the men of Israel assembled themselves, they called themselves to King Solomon at the feast in the month Ethanim, which is the seventh month. So what feast is this? The seventh month. Come now. Okay, the Feast of Booths. Very important for Ecclesiastes. Now, the noun form of this shows up in 8.14. The king faced and blessed all the assembly in verse 22. In the presence of the assembly of Israel, the gathered people in verse 55. He blessed all the gathered people assembly of Israel in verse 65. Solomon observed the feast, the Feast of Booths, a great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt. Now, this word doesn't occur all that often. Who is the assembler here? Who's the gatherer? The king is the gatherer. Solomon gathered them. 
So I believe that we should just go straight forward with this in our translation, the words of the gatherer, the one who calls the people together, or the assembler. Neither one of those is very felicitous English, so maybe we need to come up with something that works better. This took place at the Feast of Clouds, or Sukkoth, Tabernacles, or Booths. Just saw that in the verses that we read. Second Chronicles 7, 8-10 to 10 says a little bit more about that on this occasion. A parallel passage. Solomon observed the feast at that time for seven days, and all Israel with him, a very great kahal, who came from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt, and on the eighth day they held a solemn assembly. The dedication of the altar they observed for seven days, and the feast for seven days. And on the twenty-third day of the seventh month, he sent the people to their tents, rejoicing and happy of heart, because of the goodness that Yahweh had shown to David and to Solomon to his people Israel. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's palace. So the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles is entirely connected with the dedication of this temple. The tabernacle was erected and built in the first month in connection with Passover. The temple was finished and dedicated in the seventh month in connection with the Feast of Booths. Booths. And that would be something to look at too. But we're not going to. This is probably why the overshadowing or succothing of the ark by the cherubim is mentioned in 1 Kings 8, 7. Let's just remind you of that as well. It says, The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark. The cherubim made a covering, a cloud, a succoth, a booth over the ark and its poles from above. So they're dedicating the temple and then we're told all this extra stuff. Why? Well, it's a link. The Feast of Overshadowing, the Feast of Sukkoth, which we'll discuss. Well, I've got some literature on it in here. We're not going to discuss it. I'm just going to let you read it. But that is the time in which God overshadows Israel in His cloud. And that's mentioned here. So, Koheleth, the gatherer, links very strongly with Solomon. The temple building or the building project theme in Ecclesiastes links very nicely with the dedication of the temple and the king's palace on this occasion. And I think all of these things help to indicate not only the themes of the book and its relationship to history, but who wrote it. Well, who is Solomon? According to Ecclesiastes, by the way, there's a translation of Ecclesiastes in your notes starting on page 15. Chapter 1, verse 1, he is the son of David. This person who wrote Ecclesiastes is the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, that could mean grandson, great-grandson, could be Hezekiah. Who wrote it? Chapter 1, verse 12 says, I, the gatherer, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. Now, you can translate that, I was king. So some people have camped on that and said, ah. This guy was the king, and he's not the king anymore. Did Solomon ever stop being king? Nah. Actually, nobody else did either. So this is fiction. This is a hint. But it doesn't have to mean that. It just means that I have been king. I was king in the past. I'm still king. That's all that has to mean. Some of the rabbis said that Solomon was deposed for a while. And at the end of his life, he was deposed. And he writes this after he was deposed. Well, you see, that's just a myth. We don't know that. 
And the Bible indicates quite the reverse. So, we're not going to go with that. We're going to translate, I, the gatherer, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Is king in Jerusalem. What else can we find? In verse 16 of chapter 1, the author Koheleth says, I spoke in my heart, I said, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. He is wiser than anybody before him. Now, people have said, well, there was only one king in Jerusalem before Solomon, and he uses the plural here. But that's not so, of course. There was Melchizedek, he was king in Jerusalem. There was Adonizedek, there was Araunah, and there was David. But we have four named kings who ruled in Jerusalem before Solomon. By the way, when people say Melchizedek was a theophany, Solomon was wiser than Melchizedek, so Melchizedek was not a theophany. All right. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 12, which we've already heard, God says, nobody will ever be as wise as you, Solomon. So no king after Solomon could claim to be the wisest. So that kind of nails this to Solomon. Now, the standard scholarly answer to that is, sure, this guy is fictionally presenting himself as Solomon. He is fictionally presenting himself as the son of David, king in Jerusalem, wiser than all the other kings, naturally wiser than anybody that's ever going to come after the most wise, but he isn't really Solomon. To that, I have no answer except I see no reason to doubt Solomonic authorship. The arguments against it don't stand up to inspection, in my opinion. Well, when did Solomon write this? Uh, that's the question. The career of Solomon, we can just say in four parts. He has a rise to the throne in 1 Kings 1 and 2. He does wise works, although we see hints that he's goofing up along the way. But like David, David makes mistakes along the line. He starts collecting wives. He forces Michal to go back to him, which was, in my opinion, an unnecessary and sinful thing to do. But then he falls with Bathsheba. It's kind of a setup and then a fall. In Solomon, you have the same thing. Solomon's starting to collect wives, and then we have the fall section that starts in 1014, which, as you know, starts by saying he collected 666 talents of gold every year. <laughs> An idea that's picked up later on in the Bible somewhere. I can't remember where. <laughs> That's the sinful fall section that starts there, where he breaks the three laws of kingship. But we have a section of wise works, then we have a fall and decline, and then we have judgment and war. The common view among those holding to a Solomonic authorship is that the book of Ecclesiastes is written by an aged and penitent Solomon. This view assumes that the book has a lot to do with sin, and thus needs to come after Solomon's time of sin. Now, part of this is based on translations that are questionable. We all have in our minds from growing up, Solomon says, I tried everything, man. I tried wine, I tried song, and I tried women. And none of it worked. But the women is a mistranslation. And the idea that Solomon tried everything, including I tried all of these sins, and now my reflection is nothing lasts that does not stand up. There's nothing about the author of this book trying out sins. He discusses sin and the effects of sin in the book, but he doesn't try out sin. So there is actually no reason to think that this book has to have been written after a time of sin when he repents. 
It could have been written earlier. It could have been written at the end of his life. Be nice to think that because in the book of Kings, Solomon falls into sin and there's no hint that he ever repents. <laughs> Let's hope he did. But there's any hint of it. So it'd be nice for Ecclesiastes to be that hint. And maybe it is. Maybe there are arguments there. Personally, I am inclined to link Ecclesiastes with the building period. The 20 years from the 4th to the 24th year of his reign. Because the book reflects on man as sub-creator and thematically fits with the architectural projects and their wider meaning. If I were to guess, I would see Ecclesiastes as completed about the time the temple and palaces were finished and as a reflection on his experiences as a builder, as a world maker, as a city constructor, and also reflections over David's experiences with the same thing. In my mind, Solomon has all the people there together to dedicate the temple, and he sends everybody home with a copy of Ecclesiastes. To me, that makes nice sense. It doesn't make it right, though. <laughs> Just because it kind of fits doesn't make it right, but it does kind of fit. The one who gathers the people gives them this book to reflect upon, give his reflections on what he's been looking at and thinking about while this is going on. But I don't know. It could have come at the end of his life. So let's pass from that question. That's as far as I can go on this question of authorship. My conclusion is that it's written by Solomon himself. He is the gatherer. And by the way, I didn't mention this I was going through it, but from Kings and Chronicles, it's clear that one of the functions of the king was to assemble the people for the annual feasts. In the previous age, of the Sinaitic period, the priests would blow the trumpets, gather the people together. They still did. But we do see throughout Kings and Chronicles that the kings organized these things. Hezekiah organizes great feasts. Josiah, he sends messengers all up and down the country calling the people to the feast. So once the kings come about, one of the kingly functions is to get everybody to the feast. They are the kahalers, the koheleths, who call the people together. The kings began their reigns, and the civil year began in the seventh month, which is the month in which Sukkoth takes place, or tabernacles. It's all links together with calling, with the book of Ecclesiastes, and with First Kings chapter 8. So, that's as much as I can do with pulling those things together. Let's begin to look at some of the themes in the book. The first theme that I'd like to mention is the limitations of wisdom. Wisdom, as we've been considering various aspects of it here, will say the wisdom is the skill to accomplish good things, especially in society. And so it's for kings. Priests are under law. Kings rule by wisdom. You read the rules for the priests in Leviticus, it's all laid out. There is no room for any type of wisdom or discernment. You come to the tabernacle to offer your sacrifice, and the priest just asks you a bunch of questions. Got any white spots on your body I need to check out? No. Okay. Eat any unclean animals recently? No. Slept with your wife last night? No. Been near a dead body? No. Touch any dead bodies of animals, dead carcasses? No. Any other kind of uncleanness? No. Well, then you're clean. You can come in. Oh, let me look at your animal here. Check it out and see if any blemishes on it. No, it's clean. For the rest of it, it's all laid out. Now, you, you kill this animal, all right. I have to kill it? Yeah, you have to kill it. All right, first you lean on it. 
Lean on it. Pour yourself into it so that that animal is now you. And now kill yourself. Put yourself to death. Kill it. I'll cash the blood. You want me to take the blood over to the altar? No, sir. Please stay away from the altar. I'll take the blood over the altar. Uh, sir, don't go into the tabernacle. See those Levites over there and those spears? Stay away from the tabernacle, sir. Stay over here. It's all laid out. Every step. That's what it means to be under the priests. They don't have anything that they can decide one way or the other. Which part of the animal do they get? You get the right shoulder. The individual priest gets the right shoulder to take home and serve to his family. And then the breast of the animal is given to the priest and they can all have it together. Every last detail of it is laid out. How many kinds of tribute offering are there? Well, there's raw flour. And then there's baked in a pan and baked in an oven and baked on a griddle and broken up. And then there's raw groats roasted. It's all in Leviticus 2. But there are passages that tell you precisely when you do each one of those things. So the priest does not have any liberty to decide, okay, I'll do this and I'll do that. That's law. Wisdom, hey, you've internalized the law. Now you deal with all these new situations that come up with that aren't covered. Two harlots come to you, each one claiming to be the mother of the baby that's alive. Deuteronomy is not going to tell you what to do about that. Wisdom does. So wisdom is out here in society. It's pointedly for kings. Proverbs. Proverbs tells us that life makes sense. You can understand it. Wisdom enables you to function well in the world. It's an American book. Ecclesiastes is a European book. Life makes no sense. You can't understand it. Wisdom is useful, but limited. So, limitations of wisdom. Proverbs hints occasionally at limitations of wisdom, but that's not the theme of the book. In a sense, Proverbs is for younger people to encourage them and say, hey, life makes sense. Ecclesiastes is like a second look after you've had a little experience and you discover it's not always working out the way it was supposed to. Now, both of those things are true. It's not as if we pick one or the other. It's that we live with both. Now, the next thing I want to talk about in the book is the creation theme. And I think this is one of the most important things and oft neglected. The name Yahweh never appears in Ecclesiastes, but the word Elohim occurs 28 times. Now, in case you don't know it, very often books of the Bible use significant words a significant number of times. When we went through Daniel, we saw every chapter of Daniel has significant words that appear exactly 12 times, 10 times. This is literary form. Leviticus does this. Other books do it. And there are certain words that occur in Ecclesiastes, important words, and you can look at them and they're numerologically significant times. Four times seven is significant. Elohim. That's the word from Genesis 1. It's the word for God, and basically it means powers. The powers that be, in Hebrew, would be the Elohim that be. Judges and rulers and kings are called Elohim in the Old Testament. God himself is called Elohim. The singular is the word El, which means mighty one. When it comes to God, the plural means tremendously mighty one. And maybe even implies the Trinity. When it comes to human beings, it means the powers that be. But that's the implication. God makes the world. Now, why does it use the word Elohim, God, rather than the specific covenant name, Yahweh? 
One answer that you get is because this is wisdom literature and so it's in an international context and has an international audience. That may be part of the answer. But I think the main answer is that it is building on Genesis 1 with man as the image of God, as a sub-creator under God, and as a judge under God. God makes a world, and so man, his image, makes a world. I pointed out the other night, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then we have Adam and Eve, and what are their two sons named? Earth and heaven. Cain, Smith, Abel, Mist. Man does what God does at the human level as a sub-creator and judge under God. He builds a world. And so Solomon describes the world that he builds by wisdom. By wisdom I built this world. It's in chapter 2, verses 3 to 10. I explored in my heart to cheer my body with wine. My heart was guiding me wisely how to grasp or restrain folly, how to control folly, to keep it in check. Until I could see what good is there for the sons of Adam to do under the heavens a few years of their lives. So this is the world that Solomon builds. He plants a garden like God did. He makes a world like God did. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself like Noah. I made gardens and parks for myself. Genesis 2. I planted them with all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves. I had home-born slaves. Homies. My God, he has people. I possessed cattle, many herds and flocks. I had more than any who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired for myself male and female singers and delights of the sons of Adam, lots of women, See, that's what you get in some translations. But what it says is Shiddah b'shidoth. If that means breast, it means children. If Shiddah means power, it means great power. Some have said it means coffers of treasures. But there's no reason to think it means concubines. So I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. And my wisdom also stood by me. By wisdom God made the world. By wisdom kings reign. By wisdom, Solomon makes his world. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. Nothing wrong with that in a creation context. We're not talking about a sin context. We're talking about a creation context. Look, ladies, you want to decorate your house and get new furniture and make it as nice as you can make it and have a potted plant in the corner, paint the walls, Make your husband paint the walls and wallpaper the walls and stencil along the top. Make it as nice as you can make it the way you want it to be. Is that sinful? No. It's you being the image of God, being a creator, being a decorator, being a glorifier. Man is the agent of glorification in the world. He's supposed to take the world from glory to glory. The first six days, the Holy Spirit does it. Then he comes inside of a clot of dirt like you. And then these clods of dirt continue to transform the world day by day, taking it from glory to glory. That's what people do. They are supposed to be the agents of glorification. Usually they're the agents of uglification. But we're supposed to be making the world nice. All my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. Hey, that's cool. 
I did not withhold my heart from any joy. Joy is good stuff. My heart rejoiced because of all my labor. He enjoys his work. Hey, this was my reward for all my labor. Then he says, I considered all the deeds my hands had done. All this good stuff. This wonderful world I made. It's just like God's world. As people, animals, springs of water, trees, just like God made. All the labor I'd labored to achieve, which I enjoyed so much. And behold, all was vapor and shepherding wind, and there was no control of it under the sun. Now, that's the reflection he makes on all the good stuff he does. But you see, it's creation that he's reflecting on. Not, I did all this sinful stuff, and so it all blew away. I did all this good stuff, and it was wind. The king is like God, a human Elohim. Thus, he must make a world and also restrain and punish wickedness and folly. But he seems to be defeated in this, and so is every man and woman. For man is only like God, and only God is God. Thus man's work is limited, and his control is limited. When man seeks to control God's world even wisely, he is still trying to shepherd the wind, for the world is vapor to man. That's the perspective he's bringing. You build stuff, it turns out to be like mist, and it disintegrates. At the end, even your body disintegrates. So, what does that mean? How do you live in that? This is a creation theme, and the book is full of the creation motifs of lighting, forming, and filling. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form, and empty, and dark. This was over the surface of the deep. Three things. On the first day, God makes light, takes care of the darkness thing. On the second day, He sets the firmament between heaven and earth, takes care of the forming thing. On the third day, He fills the earth with plants, takes care of the filling thing. Then on the fourth day, He makes the light bearers, returns to the light motif. <laughs> I didn't say light motif, did I? And then, on the fifth day, He fills again the land and the sea, made on the third day. Fills them with fish and birds. On the sixth day, returns to forming by putting man over everything. And on the seventh day, the Sabbath returns to light. These are the three things. Well, these are the three things he's going to be reflecting on. In chapter 1, 14 and 15, he says, I have seen all the deeds that are done under the sun. And behold, all is vapor and shepherding wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. What is crooked cannot be straightened. Is that forming or filling? That's talking about forming. Things are out of form, and I can't get them straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. The world is so empty, and I can't fill it. There's a Gattaca verse, you know, at the beginning of Gattaca, this is the verse that's there. What's crooked cannot be straightened. And he says, this is what's under the sun. So he hits the three aspects of creation here. Now, in this book, and I have to just kind of tell you this because we're not going to be able to inch through the whole book, light in Ecclesiastes is associated with rulers and governors. Why is that? On the fourth day, God makes the sun, moon, and stars, and they are symbols of what? Rulers and governors. He sets them up to rule 
the day and the night, as signs and symbols. They are signs and symbols of rulers and governors. So when the sun, moon, and stars fall in the Bible, that means rulers and governors fall. It means the clock stops. The time is up for that nation. But the rulers fall. And so the sections of Ecclesiastes that deal with rulers, kings, and authorities, and they talk about the sun, are reflecting at the human level of that lightening theme that we have in Genesis 1. And we'll see that. In chapter 8, verse 1 is an example. The wise man is like the sun. Who is like the wise man who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. So your face beams out with light. Like Moses. Then it talks about kings who were like sons and their authority. So his reflection on the rulers and their difficulties is under this heading of lighting. Forming are the sections of the book that deal with society in the present. Filling are the sections of the books that deal with succession into the future. Remember what it says in Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply and fill. How does filling take place? Not by God blapping the whole earth full of stuff, but by God making a few things that then multiply out over time through generations and fill. So his reflections on generations, on succession into the future, about the king who builds a nice palace and then leaves it to his shiftless son who tears it down and ruins everything he makes, all of that is talking about filling. That's the filling theme. The succession into the future is the filling theme, how the earth isn't filled. These are the three themes. The book is going to be organized this way. I maintain. We'll come back to it, but I just want to lay it out now. So I believe that Ecclesiastes is continually meditating on creation and the material that's in Genesis 1. Man is a creator under God. Man makes worlds. These worlds have the same characteristics as God, but we're just not able to do the full job. We can only do a partial job, which is fine. But it's also frustrating. A third theme that's in the book is an eschatology theme. Solomon starts off by saying in chapter 1, verse 9, That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, Look at this, it's new. Already it has existed for ages that were before us. Now, Solomon really think that? Well, no, that's pretty stupid, isn't it? Solomon knows that there have been new covenants. He knows that there was a new covenant with Noah, and then a new covenant with Abraham, and a new covenant with Moses, and a new covenant with David. He knows that there are new things that come into the world. He also knows that a new creation is coming. He also knows that the Feast of Succoth, or Tabernacles, or Booths, in the seventh month is a pledge of an eschatological feast. And that all the eat, drink, and be merry talk, which is connected with that feast, and is a refrain in Ecclesiastes, is a pledge of a coming new age. So he knows that as a matter of fact, there are new things. There are new covenants. There are new situations. And there is going to be a new world. But from a certain perspective, it seems as if there's not. 
And it's that perspective from which he is looking at things. He is looking at things under the sun. Now this is the question, what does under the sun mean? I suggest to you that because time and decay are essential elements in this book, under the sun is not understood primarily in a geographical sense or primarily in a temporal sense. In chapter 1, verse 5, he says, The sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises again. The sun moves and creates time. I think probably the earth moves as well, but from the geocentric perspective from which this is written, the sun moves and creates the days of time from Genesis 1. It marks out the passage of time. Under the sun is under time, or first time. In chapter 5, verse 17, he saith, he saith, that's not right, you know, Seth is what you're supposed to say. Throughout his life, he eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. The person he's talking about here is in darkness during the course of his life. Darkness is a period of time here. And so, under the sun is a period of time. He contrasts it. 5.17, this man eats in darkness throughout his life. In verse 18, he says, this is what I've seen to be good. Eat, drink, and enjoy oneself in one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the years of his life that God has given him. Under the sun is time. And you have a kind of a choice. You can live under the sun or you can live in darkness, but you're going to live in time one way or the other. In chapter 9, verse 9, Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your life, of your vapor that he has given to you under the sun, all the days of your mist, the time, the days that are under the sun. Under the sun, then means in the present age. Now we know from the book of Revelation that there's going to be a time beyond the under the sun time. People say, well, Solomon doesn't know anything about that. I highly question that. Solomon knew that the sun was not made until the fourth day. Now modern evangelicals don't know that. They have just decided Genesis 1 is not in chronological order. And so they don't even bring this into consideration. But Solomon didn't think this way. He knew that there was light emanating from the glory chariot of God for three days before the sun was set up to govern. Under the sun is this period of time in which, after the beginning and before the end, we're not seeing what's going on here. Now, just numerologically, under the sun occurs 29 times. Under the heavens, which is parallel, occurs three times for a total of 32, which is 2 to the fifth power, or 4 times 8. Isn't that cool? Sun itself occurs a total of 35 times, which is 5 times 7. So now you know. Understanding is going to come when the firmament, which is made on the second day, is removed again. We, in the new covenant, are in a better position. Because, in a sense, Jesus is already our new sun and the old sun is no longer governing in the way it was. But we're not yet in the final age, and we don't yet see everything, and Solomon still has a tremendous amount to teach us. I also think, remembering that the sun and moon and stars are symbols of rulers and governors, 
as they are in the book of Revelation and everywhere else, under the sun may mean in the political order. And that's another dimension of the book that it would be worth considering. How is the world under human government as it is right now under the sun? In some parts of the book, that may be an important aspect. Well, now we come to the mist or vapor theme. And this is where our translations are so awful. Because your traditional translation says, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Well, we know what vanity is. It's pride. Years I spent in vanity and pride. Well, I didn't, but maybe you did. But uh, Vanity, pride. Or you say, well, vanity, that means emptiness. Everything is empty. Well, that's not what it says. The worst translation is the New International Version, if you can call that a translation. <laughs> the New International Paraphrase, which says, meaningless, meaningless. That is not what this word, Habel, means. It means mist or vapor. Everything is mist. Everything is a steam room. Everything is fog. Cain and Abel. This is the word Abel. Abel. Mist. Cain is smith. From the earth. The first man was of the earth, earthy. That's Cain. The second man is of the heaven, heavenly. That's Abel, who was sacrificed. Maybe. Kind of wonder if Paul didn't have that somewhat in mind in 1 Corinthians 15. Also, your Bible says everything is chasing the wind or pursuing the wind. That's also incorrect. The word is shepherd. The old standard garden variety word for shepherd. Shepherding wind is what it says. Everything is mist and shepherding wind. Like shepherding wind together here. So we get out in the fog, thick fog, and we swish some of it together and make a little fog castle. How long does it last? It doesn't last very long, does it? That's what it's talking about. Shepherding the wind. The idea is an attempt to corral and rule and manipulate mist. And you have to translate this shepherding the wind because in chapter 12, 11, we have a contrastive statement. The words of wise men are like goads. The masters of collections are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. You and I have trouble shepherding mist. God doesn't have any trouble shepherding mist. How does God travel around? In a glory cloud, right? You have any trouble manipulating that cloud? Ezekiel 1, it says the cloud flashed like lightning, making right angles. I'd say that's controlling mist myself. God has no trouble with it. You and I do. Numerologically, vapor alone occurs 31 times. Shepherding wind alone occurs twice. Vapor and shepherding wind together occur seven times. You add them all up and you get 40. The word shepherd, shepherding occurs 10 times. Once again, the numerological data points to the important terms. Well, what is meant by this word vapor or mist? Vapor, life is uncontrollable. World history and people is uncontrollable. It's ungraspable. Can you grasp the mist? No. Mentally or physically by man. You can't understand it, he says. You think you understand it. You understand a little bit of it. But when you push it all the way out, you can't understand it. You can't grasp it. It's incomprehensible. It doesn't mean you can't understand some of it. You just can't get it all. You can't get the big picture. Physically, you don't control it. You plant your garden with vegetables, and you just come back and 
six months looking for veggies and there's nothing there but weeds. What happened? It wasn't supposed to be that way. You have to keep working at it. And even then, the snails are going to get them all before you do. They should sure get all of mine. Vapor. Vapor means life is enigmatic and mysterious. But hidden in the cloud of vapor is God. In the midst of all the vapor of life, God comes and says, Eat, drink, and be merry. In the middle of this cloud is God, because the cloud is ultimately God's chariot. As we'll see in a minute, at the center of the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the Feast of Clouds, is God's cloud with Him in the middle of it. So all the cloudiness of life has at its heart God, who is enthroned on a stone throne of jasper and emerald, and is surrounded by bronze and gold and silver and all this hard, shiny stuff, and there's nothing misty about that. So, by comparison, our life is mist. This is mist. It seems hard, but it's mist, and it'll fall apart at the end. This seems hard, but it's mist. 300 years from now, it'll be dust. But in the middle of all of that, God is here. He's permanent. He's not. And He gives you to eat, drink, and be merry. And He gives you words that are from the shepherd and are like nails. See, a nail or a goad is not like mist. It's an opposite image. Here's misty stuff. And here's a nail. Now just feel the difference in that imagery. If I take some mist and throw it in your face, you don't feel it. If I take a sword and stick it into you, you do feel it. These are contrastive notions. So God's Word is hard, firm, well-driven. It's even a goad to prod you along and it's uncomfortable. It's not missed. Well, we'll be reflecting on that in the various lectures. But we want to see the imagery here. We tend to want to translate the Bible into abstract language. Nobody wants to say missed, missed, all is missed. You say, oh, let's come up with a polysyllabic abstract word for that. Meaningless, incomprehensible, incomprehensible, incomprehensible. All things are incomprehensible. We want abstract nouns, but the Bible gives us concrete pictures most of the time. At the end of the Bible, when we reflect on over everything, Paul gives us much more abstract words. But along the way, we need to sense what is being communicated here. We're living in a steam room, and we're not able to do much with it. Number six, vapor and wind can only be grasped and manipulated by God. In chapter 2, verse 26, it appears that God is said to be the only one who can manipulate the mist. I may not be reading this the right way, but it appears to me this is what it says. This is what it says. The question is, what does it mean? For to a man who is good before him, he gives wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner... He gives the task of collecting and gathering so that he may give to the one who is good before God. This, too, is vapor and shepherding wind. Now, does that mean the futility of the sinner's life is vapor and shepherding wind? Or does it mean God's activity is vapor and shepherding wind? I'm inclined to think God's activity is vapor and shepherding wind. In other words, He is able to do these things. He's behind it, and He can shepherd the wind. He can give wisdom and knowledge and joy to those who are good. He can give the task of gathering and collecting to the sinner. That's how he shepherds wind. He does manipulate the windiness of life. Maybe not. 
we don't need this verse in Ecclesiastes to know that God can manipulate all things. That's clear enough anyway, and it's clear from the very fact that God travels around in a cloud. But it does appear that this one verse is somewhat contrasted to the rest. If this understanding of 2.26 is correct, then we should link it again with the glory chariot, which in Ezekiel 1 and elsewhere is a cloud that moves in perfect lines and right angles. So, that's mist. That's where we are. Now, this mist theme brings us to the Feast of Succoth, and I have given you, in your notebook, two essays that I wrote on it, which you need to read, and if you don't read them, Burke Shade will deal with you. Okay? What these verses demonstrate is the word Succoth, or tabernacle, is closely associated with the idea of clouds. And this is the traditional Jewish understanding of it as well. That's why sometimes I call this the Feast of Clouds. And so, read those over and see the evidence that's there. I don't want to take the time to run through 50 verses in the Bible and lay all that out when it's all there on the page. Let's just consider what happened at the Feast of Succoth or Clouds or Tabernacles or Booths. Each year, the Israelites made Succoth, which means booths, pavilions, or even clouds, to dwell in for a week, gathered around God's tent, which is a symbol of His glory cloud. By the end of the week, these personal architectures were crumbling. You make a lean-to out of palm branches, what does it look like by the eighth day? It's all brown and falling apart. This is background for Solomon's reflections on mistiness and cloudiness in Ecclesiastes. At this feast... The people were enjoined to eat, drink, and be merry before God. Let's remember this, because this is quoted. You know, the later parts of the Old Testament very seldom quote the earlier parts of the Old Testament. What we call the New Testament is so completely different. Every single page of the so-called New Testament includes three or four quotations from the Old. But the Old Testament doesn't do this very much, but this is a place where it does. At the Feast of Tabernacles, it says... You can bring your tithe there. That's where you bring your tithe in the seventh month. Before you turn your tithe in, at the end of the week, you spend it, part of it, spend the money on whatever your heart desires. See? Is there something wrong with that? Well, I mean, if that means prostitutes, yeah. But that's not what's listed here. And the same as with Solomon. There's a right way to do the desires of your heart. He says, for oxen or sheep or wine... Or beer, that's what strong drink is. They didn't have distilled spirits back then, unfortunately for them. I mean, uh, they didn't have it. They're waiting for Presbyterians to come up with that, you know. Just go to charismatic churches and say, y'all can have wine and communion, but we're so hung up and stiff as Presbyterians that we have scotch and communion. It takes stronger stuff to loosen us up. No, this means beer here distilled and brewed spirits, or whatever your heart desires, whatever your soul asks of you. And there you will eat in the presence of Yahweh your God and be merry, you and your household. Drink, eat, be merry. That's what Solomon is quoting over and over again in Ecclesiastes. That's how we know that the Feast of Tabernacles is linked to the book. And I've got the passages listed for you here. And... There are seven of them, of course. The word eat occurs in the book seven times. Number three. It was at the Feast of Succoth that God's word was read to the people. 
So that's the time of the year you come together for the eight-day feast. That's when the scripture was read out to the people every year. Most people couldn't read and write in the ancient world. So you had to have it read to you. And it was read out in lines. It was cantillated. And you could pick it up and remember it much better that way. And this is the time when God's word was read. This is reflected in Ecclesiastes 12, 10 to 11, where the words of the wise are said to be permanent. Number four, the disintegration of man's works and of the human body in chapter 12 admirably reflect the annual experience of faithful Israelites at the Feast of Succoth. What remains is God's cloud booth and His word. Man's works are impermanent, but man finds permanence when he fears God and leaves the future to him. So, fear God occurs seven times in the book. And I might add that in the 5th century A.D., when the rabbis began to fix certain books with certain feasts, they fixed Ecclesiastes with the Feast of Booths. So, this is what now, in Jewish circles, is read every year at the Feast of Tabernacles. It's Ecclesiastes is read. Now, that's just confirmation of the link between the two. See, I would say that the statement that missed, missed, everything is missed, associates itself partly with the idea that we're dwelling in little clouds. So this little house made of branches, which is going to disintegrate by the end of the week, that is a little cloud house. It's a tree house. It's up in the air. It's not in the tree. But when you make a house on the ground out of branches in the tree, you're making a tree house. And the essays here discuss that more. But everything about the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Clouds, associates it with being up in the air, with being a cloud yourself, and provides good context for everything that Solomon reflects on here, the transitoritudinous of life. Two other themes to note, and we're done, and then we can survey the structure of the book in our remaining lecture. Another theme in the book is the theme of advantage or leverage or control. It's the word yithron. It occurs ten times, and in the translation I've given you, I just lay all that out every time. The word actually means surplus, something over and above the usual. And what Solomon is saying is that man does not gain any surplus or any advantage or any control by his works. His works as such are not what count before God and in history. The Jews developed this notion of a treasury of merits that the fathers had built up and that you could tap into. And then the church came up with the same idea in the Middle Ages that indulgences could be given to you based on the merits of the saints. Solomon is saying there is no surplus. There are no merits. Your work does not gain anything along those lines. There is no covenant of works. There is no merit that you can do. You live by faith alone because you can't figure life out. But also one must live by faith alone because works don't gain benefit. As Jesus said, when we have done it all, we are still unprofitable servants. Work does not profit. It may earn commendation from a master, but it's not profit. It's not merit. That doesn't exist at that level of things. And so it's by faith alone. Ecclesiastes is a major book on the subject of faith alone. You can't understand life, so you have to live by faith alone. Everything that comes to you is a gift, not something you earn. Eat, drink, and be merry, because this is the gift that God gives in the midst of life. 
So it's received by faith, not earned by works. There is no surplus, merit, or even control that man gets by these things. He does his work because it's joyous. And we'll look at this tomorrow. But at the same time, it doesn't merit anything. And two other things to notice. The word labor occurs 28 times in the book. Now that tells you, okay, this is an important notion. The notion of working and producing things is essential in the book. It's part of the man is sub-creator theme. His labor is good. Tell yourself that your labor is good. You do these things. These are deeds that are done under the sun. They don't last, but still you can't help but want to do them. Because you're made in the image of God. So you are a doer, a worker, a laborer, a producer. And then death. Death is the other major theme in the book that comes up repeatedly as the limit of life under the sun. Because of death, life seems to have no meaning. But also because of death, life does have meaning. Life seems to have no meaning because you die, it's gone. But because of death, life has meaning because God will call everything to account. God's evaluation of everything you did is what gives it meaning. The meaning doesn't come in the fact that it lasts. The meaning comes in the fact that God sees it and God evaluates it. And so, that's a survey of the book, its themes, its authorship. We can take questions for a couple of minutes. Tomorrow we'll look at the chiastic structure of the book and how the passages are put together along those lines. Yeah. When I did a cursory run through of this book, what struck me was the, the, the uh, interplay of under the sun and under heaven. And you mentioned in passing that he's a paralogue, but is that something that we should be in our... And then the second question is that this business of under the sun, you can't control the path of the sun, but in Joshua, God controlled the sun by stopping it. Is that, is that how you hear it all? Or? Actually, Joshua commands the sun to stand still, and God honors it. He commands everything to stand still, the sun and the moon the entire heavenly clock to stop. I don't know that that ties in here. Everything ultimately ties together, so there might be a way to link up these themes, but I don't have enough of either one to see where they might. Under the heaven versus under the sun. Most commentators assume that they're the same idea. There's probably a slight difference in the two, but remember that the firmament is called heaven. And the firmament is not the original situation. The sun is not the original situation. It's made on the fourth day. The firmament is not the original situation. It's made on the second day. So whether it's under the sun, fourth day motif, or under the firmament, second day motif, we're still talking history between the beginning and the end. So I think that there are probably slight differences of nuance, but they're both talking about the fact that we are within a period of time before the judgment where everything is going to make sense when things don't make sense. A lot of things don't make sense. Yeah, what's the relationship between under the sun and old covenant? Well, I touched on that when I said we seem to be in a slightly better position today because there's a sense in which we're no longer under the sun. Jesus is the new sun, but there's a sense in which we still are. And so I think that that already not yet thing means that Solomon is still with us. But I do think the completion of the Bible tells us more than Solomon knows about where history is going and the nature of things. So I don't think that we need to just absolutize Ecclesiastes 
any more than we do the book of Leviticus and say it's exactly the same for us as it was for him. But the wisdom is still there. <laughs> I don't think he's saying that our works are meaningless. He says they don't endure, and so whenever you try to figure out larger meanings, you're frustrated. And the larger meaning is always theocentric. This is in that New Testament. <laughs> well, the question in Romans 8, where it says in verse 20 in the New American Standard, the creation was subjected to futility or vanity, not of its own will. The creation itself will be set free from slavery to bondage into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. The whole creation groans and suffers the pangs of childbirth together until now. Not only this, but we ourselves groan, awaiting the redemption of our body, singular. Obviously, the majority of read on that is this is talking about dogs and cats. The animal kingdom is subjected to futility by mediating the curse to the human race, and that's what it's talking about. The difficulty with this is, as um, the old Puritan John Lightfoot points out, is the word creation here, catesis, always means the Gentile world everywhere else is used. And if we translate it, that he's still talking about Jew and Gentile things here, and he's talking about the immediate horizon, the sufferings of the present time, the glory that's to be revealed is in AD 70, the anxious longing of the Gentile world is waiting for this revelation. The Gentile world was subjected to futility. The Gentile world be set free from slavery to corruption and come into the glory of the children of God. It groans and suffers pangs of childbirth together until now. We see Matthew 24 says that the pangs of childbirth are being suffered until AD 70. And then the redemption of the body is singular here. I can't say which interpretation is right. I lean toward that, partly because in Romans 1, in verse 21, it says, Though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. I think that's the same word. Subjected to futility. And then in verse 24, God gave them over. Subjected to futility. God gave them over. God gave them over to worshiping all these different things. I think that the time when God gives them over to worshiping different things is the Tower of Babel. And so my own guess is that the subjection to futility on the part of the creation is the Tower of Babel, and that's what's being spoken of as being undone here. But I don't know. It could be something broader. Now, I guess your point is, and regardless of which side of that you take, that maybe there is some sense in which the 
onus of Ecclesiastes' ignorance is lifted somewhat by the futility being taken off. I guess the only question is whether the futility here has to do with idolatry or whether it's analogous to the mistiness of life. Part of the difficulty is there, if you translate vanity in Ecclesiastes and you translate vanity here, it looks like you're talking about the same thing. It may not be the same idea. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.